get my stuff rolling here. Now, we, the sanctuary is bigger, so the further back you sit, <laughs> Justin, you won't let your wife sit on the front row? Oh, okay. I feel safer already. All right, so we are getting close to the end of Exodus. Uh, I do want to take a moment and just thank uh, Matt and Evan for continuing in Exodus. I told them, both of them, those men, you guys can just do whatever you want to do. You can teach a lesson on whatever. And they, they both thought it was important that we are studying straight through the Bible, so I'm going to do what's next. And those passages that they, uh, that they um, came and taught and you all discussed together, uh, the, some of those are difficult passages and they difficult questions that come with that. So I was, I was thoroughly impressed and I'm, I'm glad that, that God has us here with, um, uh, with lots and lots of good people. At the hospital earlier, somebody said, you know, I just couldn't believe how, how you know, you know you got a good church when the pastor can go for away for two weeks and then there's men that will step up and teach and all. And, and that's true, but I had to tell him, you know, to be honest, First Baptist Mulvane was a good church before I ever got here, and they're going to be a good church long after I'm gone. Uh, so I'm, I'm thankful. I'm thankful. So in Exodus 34, Matt did end in verse 8, which really puzzled me, because that means I have to start in verse 9, which is right in the middle of that section. But is Matt in here? No. Good, so I can talk about him. All right, so Israel is still at the base of Mount Sinai. They're in, at the base. They don't leave Mount Sinai in Exodus. They'll, we're going to finish up Exodus, um, and they're still going to be at the base of Mount Sinai. Um, and Moses is up on the mountain receiving the covenant law, and Israel is down at the base of the mountain. What are they doing while he's receiving the commandments? Uh, the calf, the golden calf. They're, they're worshiping the golden calf. Y'all walked through all that. We looked at all that. And not only were they worshiping the golden calf, they were descending into all kinds of just vile sin. So Moses came down, and what did he do? He threw the tablets, broke the tablets of stone, and he ended up bringing justice on all of those who were engaged in all of this. It wasn't just the idolatry. They were continually rampaging and involved in all this vile sin. And Moses goes through with the Levites by his side, and it, they ended up, you know, killing 3,000 people, bringing justice on 3,000 people that refused to stop the sin that was going on. Moses goes back up the mountain. He intercedes for the people before God again. Uh, that's what y'all talked about last week. And at the end, Moses asked to see God's glory. And what happened? Yeah, God told him, I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock. God passed by. And what did God do? What did Moses see first? His backside, but technically, what are we, how does Moses describe what he saw? It's a trick question, just in case you're wondering. Yeah, he doesn't describe what he saw. He doesn't describe what he saw at all. What does he describe? What he heard, yeah. So, what we're given in the scripture, what we're given, look at, Matt is nudging Emily going, look, I got the right answer. <laughs> God passed by, and what did he do? He proclaimed his name. 
You know, he declared his attributes, you know. And so, yes, Matt was correct last week when he said that God revealed himself to Moses, not so much in what Moses saw, but what Moses heard. And then after that, what does Moses do? God passes by, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate, gracious, showing mercy to thousands, will not leave the guilty unpunished. And the next verse says, what did Moses do? Verse 8. Huh? He bowed down and worshipped. He bowed his head and worshipped. And we will begin in verse 9, because some reason Matt left that off for some reason. But uh, Moses bowed down, he prayed. That's what he did. So in verse 9 it says this, and this is Moses. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take for us for your inheritance. So God declares his love, his mercy, his graciousness, and the final words of what God said according to his attributes were, I will not leave the guilty unpunished. And so that, I think, I can't prove this, but I think that must have struck a chord with Moses because he knows what all has been happening. God knows what all has been happening down at the bottom of the Mount Sinai. So Moses prays again, interceding for these people who had sinned grievously against God. And if you remember our walk through Moses' time on the mountain with God and his prayers to God on the mountain, his intercession for the people on the mountain, you're going to recognize that everything Moses says here in verse 9 are things that he's already prayed for before and things God already answered and promised to do before. Do you see that? To go with us, to be with us, to forgive our sin, pardon our iniquity, to take us for your inheritance. God had already answered those. God had already said, okay, I will do those things. Y'all looked at that last week and the week before. In fact, in Exodus 32, several chapters before, Moses prayed that God wouldn't destroy the Israelites after the calf incident but that he would preserve them for his glory. He prayed that their sin would be forgiven. He prayed that God would go with them. He prayed that that he would be Israel's God. Then in Exodus 33, God promised to do all these things. He said, okay, I'm going to do all these things. That's what Evan uh, talked about over the uh, passage in 33. So here's the question. Is it appropriate for Moses to be asking the same things over again that God had already told him he was going to do? Yes. We do do it. We do do Yeah, we do. We do it. We do it. Yes. I think it is appropriate. I don't think I don't think Moses is pestering God to make sure God hadn't changed his mind. You know, Moses is what he's doing is God has revealed his glory. Hit him in the cleft of the rock, revealed his glory proclaimed his name, you know, with all of these attributes attached to it. And Moses is taken aback by this this incredible sight, this incredible sound of God's own voice proclaiming his name and who he is and what he will do. And I will not leave the guilty unpunished. And Moses is humbled. He bows. He begins to worship. And he prays, well, God, forgive us our sins. He's praying in accordance with the promises that God has already made. We do the same thing. We pray according to what God himself has promised. How many times? Just today, I was praying with a family in the hospital. 
And I said, God, you promised to never leave or forsake your children. So I know that you're here with them. I know that you're in this room with them. I know that you're ministering to them. And we pray according to his promise. And when we pray according to his word, we pray according to his promise. We know that he hears us and we know that our prayer is answered because he promised that that is what's going to take place. And we do it repeatedly. Now, we don't do it repeatedly in the sense that we make babbling words and we, you know, say that, you know, God doesn't hear us because we say, God, please be with me. God, please be with me. God, please be with me. He doesn't hear us because we, we, we do many words and we repeat something over and over and over and over again. But we're called to be persistent in prayer, like the persistent widow Jesus talked about in his peril. In fact, Jesus taught his disciples to pray, you know, give us this day our daily bread. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. Let us, lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. And we pray those things in, in one form or another. It's not that you have to repeat it verbatim. But we pray those things in one form or another every day. God, be with me today. God, God don't lead me into temptation. Don't, don't let me succumb to temptation. God, let your kingdom come. And all of those things are promises. God promises that he will not tempt us in the book of James. God promises that his kingdom will come and it will come in fullness. And we're waiting on that day. Uh, and so we're praying according to his promises and we're praying those things. Uh, I don't want to say repeatedly because when you say repeated prayer, you're sound, you sound like you're, you know what I mean when I say repeated, like, like, God, please be with me. God, please be. And you think because I say it 800 times that that means something or like, you know, I, my, my whole family is Catholic. And so they do the rosary beads where you just you say it for how many be. He doesn't hear you and respond because you say it many, many times. He responds because you're persistent in your heart and you know that this is where it's sought. And I am I am I am praying from my heart over and over again. All of you probably know if you've had a loved one that has been sick or a loved one who has had tragedy or trauma or, or something like that, you know that, that that there's just a repeated longing, God, please heal my child. You know, please, God, please heal my child. It's not a rote verbatim re repetition. It's a, it's a persistent calling of the heart. You're my only hope. You're the only hope that I have. And so Moses repeating the same things that he prayed for before is not... Um, inappropriate. In fact, it is what God uses to accomplish his will. One of the questions I watched the, uh, the guys teach on last Wednesday night and the Wednesday night before. One of the questions Evan posed to you was, do we change God by our prayers? And the discussion was good. And, you know, there, I, I, I didn't, I thought he handled it really well, but he did, he did not say the whole answer that I told him when he asked me. So he says, do we change God by our prayers? I did say it depends. But then I said, from God's perspective, no, we don't change him. He's unchanging. But from our perspective, prayer changes things. And so God uses in his sovereign plan, he uses our prayers to make things happen. So if you look at it from God's perspective, which our finite minds cannot even comprehend, he knows the end from the beginning. He knows what's going to happen. He's all knowing. He's, but he has chosen to use our prayers to change things. That's why the Bible says you have not because you ask not. Our prayers change things. So make sure you understand that. We don't change God, but prayer changes things. Y'all with me? Okay. All right. So... Um, 
There is something different about what Moses prays right here. Do you see it? I know it's been, it's been several weeks since I've been here, but Moses prayed all these things before in chapter 32, chapter 33, but there's a slight difference here from those prayers he prayed. I'll give you a hint. The whole world of biblical interpretation sometimes revolves around pronouns and prepositions. So before, he was, God, forgive them. If you're going to blot them out, blot me out. Forgive their sin. What does he say now? God, Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us for it's a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. He asked God to forgive. He, he's, he's identifying himself with his people. Now, there are two views as to why this is, and I, I think both might be correct. So the first view is Moses isn't asking for forgiveness for himself um, for the golden calf incident. Of course, he wasn't there. You know, he wasn't down there, so he wasn't his sin. Uh, he's asking for forgiveness for that sin for them, but the sin he's asking for himself is the breaking of the tablets, You know, the, the anger that threw the tablets down. That very well may be true. It may be true. I told you the last time I was here, there's a debate about whether it was right or wrong for him to do that, and there's good Bible-believing people on both sides. Um, but whether or not that is the case, it doesn't matter. He is mediating for his people, identifying himself with the people in their sin. And that's a picture of? Yeah, Jesus is never the wrong answer. <laughs> Jesus, although Jesus was not a sinner, he took sin upon himself. He became sin, it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. So that we might become the righteousness of God. He is our mediator before a holy God. And so now Moses has prayed this prayer again. And God answers Moses' request again. And what he does is he, this whole section is really just a reinstatement, a restoration of the covenant that the people had just broken down at the bottom of the mountain. So he's reinstituting the covenant that he made with them. And I'll show you that as we walk through it. It says, and he said, God said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels such as has not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. We're going to get to those commands here in just a minute. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Now, when God says, I am making a covenant, He's not saying I'm making a new covenant with you. He is restoring his covenant with the people, which included all of the promises that God had given them. We know this because right before this section, the section Matt taught last week, he said, go and write the Ten Commandments again on stone. And at the end of this chapter, we're going to see Moses does get the Ten Commandments again. And those are the covenant documents. It's the same covenant. He's restoring the covenant. And so when he says, I am making a covenant, you could say it in this way. I am, I am remaking this covenant. I am, I am restoring the covenant that I've already made with you. And that all the covenant promises go with it. I'm going to go with you. I'm going to forgive your sins. I'm going to take you as my inheritance. Uh, 
I'm going to drive out the people of the land. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. Uh, and so God was agreeing to restore, to bring forgiveness and restore the covenant, not to revise it. It's not a new covenant. It's the same covenant. Uh, it's a restoration of the covenant that they broke, which is amazing, isn't it? I mean, it's amazing that he made, I mean, think about where we've been. So we've been at Mount Sinai all this time. God makes this covenant with them. And what did the people say? God said, okay, here's all things I want you to do. Here's all things I'm going to do. And the people said, we're in. We're committed to do it. And within 30 days, they're worshiping a calf, breaking the covenant. God had every right to wipe them off the map. And you have that interplay with, with Moses saying, I'm going to destroy them and make a nation out of you. And, and Moses mediates before them. And through this mediator, God has given them forgiveness. God has restated this covenant. And we're going to see the restatement here in a moment. Um, and he is doing it. This is very important. He's doing it not because Israel are such great people. He's doing it so that his name would be glorified in the earth. You see it? He says, listen, I'm going, I'm making this covenant with you. I'm going to, I say remaking is not the word that's used here, but I'm using it because that's what he's talking about. He's, I'm making this, this same covenant with you again. We're going to cut new tablets. We're going to write the Ten Commandments on those tablets again. And we're going, to, we're going to go along with the Sinai Covenant. And he says, and I'm going to do marvels that your people haven't seen created in the earth or any nation. All the people among you, whom you are, meaning the people of the land that you're going to, they're going to see the work of the Lord for it's an awesome thing that I will do. I'm going to drive all of these people out for his namesake. He, you know, uh, all through Exodus, we've seen that, that God saved his people for his glory. You remember all that? He brought Israel out of Egypt in order to display his power and his grace. He said, I'm going to bring you out and all of Egypt will know that my name is the Lord. And God tells Moses that all the people of the land are going to see the work and be in awe of it when I drive these people out. He's going to lead them through the wilderness and drive out the Canaanites and all the other ites out of the land and fulfill his promise to his people. And God's purpose is the same today, to declare his glory among the nations. And he did, he did this by sending his son to pay for the sin of the nations. And call all the people of the nations to come and to trust in Jesus and partake in this salvation. This is the mission of the church as well. We've been talking about it for, for four weeks now. We're going to talk about it for at least two more. Uh, about our mission to make disciples. To spread the image of Jesus Christ over the face of the earth. So what's happening here is God is remaking the covenant based on Moses' intercession for his people based on his mercy, based on his promises to his people. So before Moses goes down from his presence, God in this next section, and I'm going to read the whole section so you just get the whole thing in your mind because there's a lot here. Um, God reiterates some of the commands he had previously given. Not all of them, which is strange, but we're going to talk about that. So I want to read verses 12 through 26. So you can follow me on the screen or follow me in your own Bible. I want you to hear it all at once. And then we're going to go back and we're going to look at them. Because honestly, it seems a little random what God says. So he says, okay, I'm going to, you observe what I command because I'm going to drive all these people out. And then here is the commands. 
Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim. Asher, y'all know what asherim is? Asherah poles, you're, you're, yeah. Huh? Yeah, the goddess Asherah, the fertility goddess, was the consort of Baal, who was a Canaanite god. So you're going to tear down all their pagan worship stuff. For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous god. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. This is why he doesn't want them to make a covenant with the people of the land. And when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice. Don't make a covenant with them because when they're doing their thing and they invite you, you'll be tempted to go and participate. And you take, and you take of their daughters for your sons and their daughters whore after their, after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Beeb. For if the, in the month of Beeb you came out of Egypt... All that open the womb are mine. All your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, the firstborn of a donkey, you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruit of wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year shall your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel, for I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders, so no, so no one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times a year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover remain until morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Now, that's a lot, right? And it seems like it's in random, just random order, you know? Sometimes it's hard to see what's going on. And often we read this section and we just say, well, God's just repeating some of the things he said earlier. If you've been here through Exodus, every single one of those commands he has said before. And we've walked through them and we've explained them before. So it, in this almost seemingly random list, um, he doesn't repeat every law and every statute that he has given over the course of Exodus. So why does he repeat some things and not other things? When he's reinstating the covenant, why does he just repeat these things? Anybody know? I don't expect you to know because I didn't know until I learned this week. So remember the context of the last few chapters. Israel had just broken the covenant by committing adultery. Uh, adultery. Well, God calls it adultery. Idolatry. Worshiping the golden calf. But now God had forgiven their sin. He was restoring the covenant with them, which is why he had the new tablets made with the commandments on them. And now they were going to continue their journey to the promised land for his glory. So the things that God does restate here to, to Moses are the things they need to hear and be reminded of to keep them from falling into idolatry again. 
the things that would help them help the people grow in their love for God alone instead of being drawn away to the temptation of idols. Because when they get to Canaan, they're going to see all the idols and they're going to see all the stuff again. These are things to help keep them from being tempted to give themselves to other gods again. So God begins by telling them what not to do. So in verses 12 through 16, it says this. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram, for you shall worship no other god, for the Lord whose name is jealous. Your translation may say the Lord is jealous for his name. Is a jealous God, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their other gods and sacrifice to their gods, you're invited, you eat of his sacrifice, you take and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after other gods and make your sons whore after their other gods. First thing he says, what not to do. Don't yoke yourself with any of these people. Don't make covenant with any of these people. They were not to align themselves with any of the people in the land. Make no covenant with them. To do so would be a snare, he says. A snare to you because it will lead you into idolatry. Basically, in this text, God is just reiterating what he said in Exodus 23. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. He puts them both together. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. A lot of the same language used there is used here in Exodus 34. There is to be no covenant made with the people or their gods because the true God has made an exclusive covenant with them. They're not to yoke themselves with the world and the way the world does things. And they were to remove them from the land. Do you remember why? We get so far, we get so far into Exodus and we get into Joshua and they're just, they're just killing everybody. You know, they're just running them out of the land. And sometimes we think, oh, these poor innocent people. Well, do you remember why God waited 400 years to remove them from the land? And when God sent Joshua in after the 40 years in the wilderness, he said, you don't leave nobody alive. You drive them all out. Remember why? Huh? Gave them 400 years to repent. Back in Genesis 15, 15, 16, I think, when he made the covenant with Abraham, he said, in 400 years, they're going to be, I'm going to bring your people back to this land because the sin of the Amorites is not yet full. He gave them 400 years to repent. So, you know, we, we get the picture because, you know, we see all the Hollywood movies and we see all the... We get the picture of just militant, angry, evil Israel rushing through villages and poor little housewives and stay caught up in there. The reality is these were wicked pagan people. I'm sure that there were children and there were women and there was all that kind of stuff going on. You even see that in the book of Joshua. But this was the Canaanite culture was horrid. You know, child sacrifice, offering sacrifices to Molech and to Baal and to... I mean, just the vile, the things that you see in Leviticus, you know, don't lie with another man and, and just all the vile practices that they were not to do. He says, he's, God says, because the people I'm removing from the land engage in these practices. So God was, yes. Yeah. Yeah, we'll get to that. They do. It seems so serious. They seem so bought in. And almost all of them. 
Yep. Everybody hear that? He said, it seems weird that they go right down the line not doing exactly what God told them to do. You know, they do make covenant with people. They do not drive all the people out of the land. They do. Yeah, we'll get to that in just a moment. So they're not to yoke themselves. They're not to make covenant with these people. And in verse 15 and 16, which we looked at a moment ago, I'm going to zip past this one. It says, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice. Covenant with them would lead to temptation in their worship. And you take their daughters for your sons and their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. These verses describe why it was so important not to make a covenant with these people, not to yoke yourself with these people, the people of the land. They, this, this section here, in my mind anyway, it describes a downward descent into idolatry. To be in an alliance or a covenant with these people would lead to partnership with them. When you're invited, you'll eat of their sacrifice. And the temptation to worship as they do would be there. And to worship who they worship would be there. And then to intermarry among them would bring idolatry into the nation. And here God is likening idolatry to prostitution. That's why he uses the word whoring, through the, whoring after these other gods. God warns the people that making covenant with the people would bring the temptation to worship idols. That's why he is reiterating these particular commands and not other commands because this is what they were just guilty of. They were just worshiping. He's telling them this is what you don't do in order to keep yourself from this temptation that you just fell into. And wouldn't you know it, just as Matt said, all the warnings turned out to be exactly right. When Israel entered into the land, they did make a covenant with other nations, albeit they were deceived by the Gibeonites, but they did make covenant with other nations. They did allow the pagan altars to continue standing. And I mean, who could have guessed? They were seduced into idolatry again and their children as well. In fact, idolatry was the main sin of Israel all through her history. We could walk through the time of Judges, the days of Josiah. When Josiah came and brought reform, it was because all the rampant idolatry was going on everywhere. They had forsaken God's law. They hadn't been, hadn't been abiding by God's law. In fact, the book of God's law was hidden way off somewhere and they had to go get it. You know, we could walk through all the days of Ezekiel when he prophesied. We, we could walk through the history of Old Testament Israel, and it was always marked with idolatry. God reinstates the command with certainty. Now, if we back up to verses 13 and 14, which we just read, he also tells them, not only do you not make covenant with these people, but you don't leave their worship places standing. You don't leave their altars. You don't leave their Asherah poles or their Asherim, whatever you want to call them. They were not to let these things remain. So God was going to drive out the people of the land and they were going to leave all their altars behind, presumably. These would, if they remained standing, they would be a continual temptation for the Israelites to worship either the God the altar represented or worship the true God with a, with a, what do you call it? Uh, a defiled altar that was not the way God, not the altar God commanded them to use. You, they want, he, God wanted them to worship him alone. God wanted them to worship him alone in the way that God said to worship him. They were not to use these, these altars. So God tells them to tear them all down. Don't leave them standing 
or they will be a snare to you, he says. Because God is a jealous God. Like I said earlier, this could be translated, he's jealous for his name. And so he says, this is what you don't do to fall into the sin that you just fell into. Number one, don't make covenant with the people when you get to the land. Number two, don't, don't uh, intermingle with them, with your sons and with your daughters. And don't leave their worship sites standing. And then finally, he caps it off with verse 17 saying, you shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. Why would he say that? That's what you just did. That's what you just got through doing. Don't do that. Here's a question for you Bible historians. Did Israel ever make any more idols for themselves? That's not a trick question. Yeah, they certainly did. In fact, they made the same idols that Aaron made. In 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 28, Jeroboam said this. Now, this is after the kingdom split, north and south. Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. He was worried about people going to Jerusalem rather than coming up and worshiping there in the north kingdom. Um, If these people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple uh, at the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So look what he did. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Look what he says. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Where have you heard that before? Not only did he make the same idol Aaron made, he said the same words Aaron said. So yeah, how could Israel possibly come to this in the time of 1 Kings? Because when they first entered the land... They decided not to destroy the altars. They decided they could make covenant with the people. That's how it starts with us as well. We allow ourselves to toy around with the things that tempt us to sin. Toy around with things that are are growing in our lives to become idols. But the fact remains, you know, when you dance with the devil, the devil don't change. He changes you. We're called to be in the world, but not of the world. We're called to separate ourselves from idolatry in all of its forms. And you could make a good case that any time we sin, it is a form of idolatry because we're putting self above God's command. We're putting whatever this is above God's command. In fact, Paul says that, um, not concupiscence, but covetousness is idolatry. So what do we do? We go to war against idolatry. That's what he's saying. Don't hang around with these people. Don't make covenant with these people. Don't have their stuff in your midst. Don't have their worship stuff in your midst. Don't allow intermarrying with them that their gods would be brought into your, you know, their worship practices would be brought into your nation, into your families. He's saying if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. God wants our relationship with him to be exclusive. He is our God. We are his people. We need to guard our hearts. And at the first sign that something, anything, even good things, are pulling us away from our 
our devotion, our worship, our obedience to God, we are to tear it out. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, if, you know, like Cameron talked about when he preached about family being an idol, it doesn't mean tear your family out. It means you, you need to go to war on that sin that's in your heart. You need to tear it out of your heart. Like the Israelites, it happens the same way it happens to them, it happens to us. First, we make a truth, a truce with it. We tolerate it. We tolerate it in our presence. We tolerate it in our lives. We tolerate it in our household, whatever the sin is, whatever the idol is. Soon we're drawn into, you might not like this terminology, but you're drawn into worshiping it. I, I need it. I deserve it. We're drawn into living for it. So here God tells people, this is how I'm remaking this covenant with you. And I'm going to reiterate some things to you that will help you to not fall into the same thing that you just came out of. That almost cost you your life. Remember, God said, I, I want to destroy all these people. And I'm going to make a nation out of Moses. So God tells them what not to do in order to protect themselves from idolatry when they're in the land. Don't covenant with these people. Get rid of all the stuff that's idols and worship, the things that they worship in the land. And don't allow this intermingling to happen where they're bringing their gods and their sin and their stuff into your presence, into your homes, into your nation. Now God is going to tell them what they are to do to continue to grow in their love for him alone and not be tempted to go after idols. Y'all with me? Any questions? Sorry, I've been talking a long time. Ooh, it's 7.15. Yes. Alright, I'm going to do this one quickly. In this next section, we've already read it, so you know what's coming. There's a lot of stuff, and it's all mixed together. So to help us understand it better, what I've done is I'm going to summarize the commands into three categories and show you the verses that apply in the category in the way that I see it. So you can push back on it. It'll be fine. We'll discuss it, whatever you want. So he told them what not to do. Don't allow this. Don't make a truce with this. Don't, don't allow this to intermingle with you. Don't be a party of this. Now he tells them what you must do to foster your love for the true God so you won't fall into these patterns of idolatry. And the first category is to keep regular patterns of worship. He tells us this in verse 18 and then 22 through 25. First he says, You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Beeb. For in that month of Beeb you came out of Egypt. We've already had that command before. Keep the feast of unleavened bread. And then in 22 through 25, he tells them to observe all the feasts exactly the way that he's commanded them to observe. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of the wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord your God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out the nations before you in larger borders, so no one will covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times a year. Now, we've already gone into depth previously in previous chapters about each of the three feasts and what they signify and what they pointed to. So we're not going to do that. But just suffice it to say, all the feasts 
uh, celebrated and reminded Israel of the salvation God had given him. The Passover, the Feast of, of Weeks, which was the Feast of Pentecost, you know, and then in gathering. We've already talked about all of those things. And each one was a picture of the salvation that God and the provision that God had provided for him. So God repeats the command that all the men appear before him at these feasts three times a year. And he does so, God's showing them how they can keep themselves from idolatry. The idolatry they just fell into and how they can grow their love for the one true God. As they worshiped in these feasts, they were reminded in tangible ways of God's saving grace. The, the lamb of the Passover, the, the feast of weeks included the booths and, and the coming out of Egypt and you know that, that picture of living in tents. And all of these things reminded them of God's salvation and his, his grace, his ongoing care for their needs. And God even anticipates the excuses that some people might use to not go to one of these feasts. So if all the men of Israel left their fields and their homes at specific times every year, what's the danger? Yeah, you, you'd be, you'd be, not only would you all be in one spot, but you'd be open, your land and your home be open season for raiders. They all know on this day, every man's going to be gone out of this Israelite town. Let's go raid it. They all know on this particular day, they all go up to this feast. That all these fields are going to be ripe for us to plunder. They would be susceptible for people seizing their land. So someone would say, I, I can't go. Some, the whole city would be unguarded. The whole field would be unguarded. We can't do that. God says, listen, you obey my command. I will protect your home. I will protect your land. So by remembering to keep these regular patterns of worship and remembrance of God's salvation and God, what God has done, they would grow in their love for God and they would flee idolatry. They would, they would be able to stand against the temptation of idolatry. God reminds them also in verse 25 to keep the feasts in the way that he has commanded them. So these regular patterns of worship must be according to what God has demanded his worship be. He said, you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leaven or let the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover remain until morning. That seems like just simple uh, reiteration of what he said before, but it's here to remind them, listen, you stay away from those people and their altars and their, all their stuff to keep you the temptation from idolatry from seeping into you again. And then you keep these regular patterns of worship the way I've commanded you to do them so that your love for me and your understanding of my salvation will grow and you will be, you will, your heart will love me more than all of the idols that you're tempted to be, you know, uh, infatuated with and all those things. So, he says, keep these feasts. Well, what does that mean for us today? Do we keep any feasts? Come on. Thanksgiving. Who said that? <laughs> well, is there a meal that we partake for remembrance of God's salvation? Absolutely. Absolutely. We, the Lord's Supper is a continual reminder. Do this in remembrance of me until I come, of the salvation God has given us. Regular patterns of worship help us to grow in our love for God. That's what Dave and Cameron were preaching on in worship. Well, Dave was preaching on corporate worship as we're doing Worship Connect Serve. 
They help us grow in our love for God as we're reminded of the salvation. We need to be reminded. I know you may think that you've got it, you know, you've got it in your brain and you know the gospel. I know the gospel too, but I need to be reminded. Let me tell you what, when I'm struggling and when I'm hurting and when I'm going through suffering and when I don't know where to turn and just all kind of things are just at, it happens to me just like it happens to everybody else. You know, I go to, there's a couple of people that I go to that are, I would consider my mentors, my disciples, whatever. And you know what happens? Every time they tell me what I already know. They tell me the gospel. They tell me my place in Christ. They tell me who I am in Christ. They tell me who, I already know that, but I got to be reminded. I need to be reminded just like everybody else. So these regular patterns of worship we're reminding ourselves of, of what Christ has done, who he is. It keeps our love burning for Jesus Christ rather than for the trinkets and the shiny things of the world. It's important. And the next thing he tells them, I really got to hurry, is not only do you keep regular patterns of worship, but you keep regular patterns of the Sabbath as well. He says six days in verse 21, you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest in plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. God reminded them of his command that he'd already given. Matter of fact, this is like the fifth time in Exodus he's talked about the Sabbath. Day of rest, holy to the Lord every week. And again, he anticipates the excuse why people won't keep the Sabbath. The excuse that would tempt them to forsake the Sabbath. We've got to plow. We've got to get this out before the weather hits. We've got to harvest We've got to get the seed in the ground. Otherwise, it's not going to grow on time. It's not, we're not going to have food to feed our family. He says, six days you work, on the seventh you rest, and you do it in plowing time, and you do it in harvest time. If ever there was a time that seemed appropriate to break the Sabbath, it would be when, you know, hey, the crop needs to come in or it's going to spoil. Or when there's a window in the weather that you're able to plant, you know. But even then, God commands it. You take a day of rest when you're building my tabernacle. You take a day of rest when you're building your own house and your own fields. Now, that, my friends, would take an act of faith. <laughs> you imagine? I, I know a lot of farmers where I'm from, and a lot of them are like, oh, no, we got to go now. We got, I mean, not all of them break the Sabbath, but what I'm saying is it, sometimes it's urgent. You know, if it rains three weeks in a row and it's planting time, it's urgent, buddy. You got to get that seed in the ground. You got to get it in now. If there was ever a time that, that you, would, you would break the Sabbath, that you would say, oh, well, justify, i got to do this today, it would be during plowing and harvest time. God says, no, you, you keep my Sabbath in plowing time and you keep it in harvest time. In fact, he's basically telling them, you have to plan your week around the Sabbath rather than vice versa. And we've already seen in Exodus, this command applies to us as well. Christians honor the Sabbath by keeping the Lord's Day holy. One day in seven, devoted to God. For us, it's the same thing. It takes faith and obedience. We must do what God says and trust that six days are enough to do the work God's called us to do. God reiterates this command to show us that keeping a weekly day of rest nourishes our love for the one true God. It strengthens us as we devote that day to God to flee from temptation of idolatry, to not let things of the world, even good things, take the place of God in our heart, to turn our eyes upon Him. It's a day where you have to turn your eyes upon Him 
rather than doing the, the normal things of the day. Trusting that he's going to take care of me even though I know i got to get this stuff done today. Make sense? Questions, comments, cries about race? There's one more thing. Oh, you're talking about seventh day being Saturday? No, I don't think so. Because, uh, because the early church, including Paul, Peter, they, they, made, uh, they, they began keeping the Sabbath on the first day of the week. First Corinthians chapter 16, when you gather on the first day of the week. Twice in Acts, they said, and they gathered to break bread and worship on the first day of the week. So it was, it was the apostles that, that changed the day. So I don't think we're, I don't think we're in violation. Yeah. We, we talked about that at extents in the, in the Sabbath when we walked through the, the laws. So we can go back and listen to that, but I don't have time right now. So, yeah, last one. Okay, sum up. This is how you grow your love for God and flee from idolatry and fight the temptation of idolatry. Number one, any, any, any infiltration of it, no matter how small, get rid of it. So don't make covenant with them. Get rid of the altars. You know, don't intermingle. Don't let that stuff come. Don't be in the presence of it. Basically, that's what he's saying. That's what you don't do. What you do is you keep regular patterns of worship, you know, as God has commanded. You keep regular patterns of the Sabbath as God has commanded. And the third thing is you give God the first and the best of all. He said, all that open the womb are mine. All these are just repeats of what God has said before in Exodus. All that open the womb are mine. All your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, firstborn of the donkey, you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons, you shall redeem and none shall appear before me empty handed. And then he says, the best of the first fruits of your ground, you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. That goes back to the way that they worship. So God says the third thing, God just gives the commands. I'm saying the third thing is that we give God what is first and what is best, what is due him. And he talks about your animals. He talks about your harvest. He talks about your children. You know, we talked about all of these in Exodus before. We redeemed the firstborn child. He, God doesn't allow child sacrifice, so there ain't any of that. A donkey, he says, you break its neck or you redeem it because a donkey is an unclean animal. So he's reiterating the commands that he had given many, many times in Exodus. So here's my question. How does this giving our first and best, foster our love for God. Grow us in our love for God. Yeah, he said, if we love him the way we're supposed to, we want to honor him with our best. And indeed, that's true. And sometimes... Giving of our best, and we're not talking just about money, but this is money is included for sure. We give our offerings, we do, we got boxes on, I don't know if we ever pointed those out to you guys, but we put the offering boxes on the deal. We're not just talking about that, we're, he, he's talking about your animals, your harvest, your children, your, you, you, all of life. You give, him, you give him your best. You give him what's due him. You, well, as Cameron said on Sunday, you give your body as a living sacrifice. You know, in fact, in, in the biblical literature, in the New Testament, 
in the Old Testament as well. In fact, in reality, to love is to give. God so loved the world that what did he do? He gave his son. You know, God's love to us is the example of what our love should be to him. He wants the best of us. He wants, he knows we're sinners. When I say the best of us, I don't mean, you know what I mean by that, right? He wants us to love him with all we are and to, and to honor him and love him as, uh, as he loves us. He wants the best of our worship. He wants the best of our devotion. He wants the best of our love. He wants the best of our, and sometimes, sometimes it's training wheels that train our heart of how faithful he is and how good he is when we give, especially when it's sacrificial. You know, there's one man, I can't remember his name, but he says, you know, there's a lot of discussion about tithe and whether Christians in the New Testament era are required to give 10%, which is technically what tithe means, a tenth. Uh, And I'm not getting into all that. But there's one guy who says that tithing, setting yourself at 10%, is just a training wheel to let you learn how to give, learn how to love in that way. And so, you know, we've went through these laws. God doesn't keep their firstborn son. The firstborn son comes back home with you. You know, you just go and you redeem him to the Lord, dedicate him, give him to the Lord. And then he comes back home with you. But he belongs to the Lord. In fact, they all belong to the Lord, but they were to be dedicated to the Lord. So what are some sacrifices that we offer him? They're not lambs and they're not grain and they're not donkeys. What are the sacrifices we offer him? We don't offer sacrifice to merit anything. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. But we are called to sacrifice, to give sacrifice to him. What do we offer? Praise. Praise is exactly correct. Not the only one, but correct. Hebrews 13. Through him, writer says, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So like Cameron preached Romans 12, offer your body as a living sacrifice. We have sacrifices that we give to God, not to merit salvation, not to merit favor, not to merit grace or to earn heaven, but because we love God and he's given us everything. Anything else? Any other sacrifices we offer? Time. Time. For sure. Our lives. You know, time of our lives. You know, like, that, you know, that's a song, but you know what I mean. Like, you when I. Study every day. Yeah, absolutely. Our labor. Your labor. Sure. When you serve. Absolutely. It's a sacrifice. Janet said that she thinks the question should be, what do we not sacrifice to God? Because we should give him everything. Yes? You asked earlier why, why we give God the best. He gave us the best. Yeah. Yeah. Lyle said, God gave us the best. So how could we give him less? And, and the reality that it comes back to is, What we get, no matter what we're talking about, 
no matter what, we're, whether we're talking about the animals and the grain or whether we're talking about time or praise or what we're giving to God is what God has given to us. You have the breath in you to praise him because he gave it to you. You have the time to give him because he gave it to you. You have the ability to serve, you know. I, I knew a preacher one time. I got to go, I know. But it's been two weeks, so I, I get a little extra. <laughs> I had, a, I had a preacher friend of mine who was a very, very outspoken guy, and he went to his grandson's baseball game or whatever, you know, and this guy just went nuts every time, you know, his grandson hit a ball, and he was, I'm, I'm talking about embarrassing nuts, not just, oh, great, great job, I mean, just embarrassing, and the guy on the other side said, man, why do you act like that? He said, he said, God gave that boy them legs, and I'm praising God for that boy's legs running in bases. You know, everything you have, the breath in your body, the heartbeat that you have, the bank account you have, the job you have, the family you have, the house you have, everything you have has been given to you as a gift from God. And it is only fitting for us to give the best back because he's given it to us all. Questions, comments, cries of outrage? It's good to be back with you guys. Let's pray. Father, we do love you and we thank you for your work. God, I thank you for all the, uh, just the truth, uh, the truth and the, um, the, the wonderful, wonderful passage here. God, as we continue with uh, this text uh, in, in Exodus 34 and we talk about Moses' shining face next week, God, I pray that you would just show us um, what that means for us in the New Testament interpretation and, and just what, it's, what it means to be in your presence. God, I pray that you would just be with us this Sunday as we're going to be talking about connecting and discipling relationships. And just, just um, God, just continue to work among us because you are wonderful. And you are you're doing a grand work in my own life and my family and in this church. And I praise you for it. We do love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.